0: Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. Today, we'll be speaking with Paula Lopez Caballero and Ariadna Acevedo Rodrigo, editors of the new book, Beyond Alterity, Destabilizing the Indigenous Other in Mexico, published by the University of Arizona Press in 2018. Paula is a researcher at the Centro de Investigaciones Interdisciplinarias en Ciencias y Humanidades of the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, and Ariadna is a researcher and professor in the Departamento de Investigaciones Educativas at the Centro de Investigación y de Estudios Avanzados del Instituto Politécnico Nacional. Ariadna and Paula, welcome to the program. Thank you. So Beyond Alterity is an edited volume with contributors from different disciplines. So before we get into the book itself, I'd like to hear from each of you what brought you to this project. What was the scholarly trajectory that led to this collaboration? Paula, could you speak to this?
1: Yes. Well, uh, thank you, Rachel, for welcoming us here and giving some uh, possibility of talking about Beyond Alterity with uh, all the listeners here. Um, so, well, I don't know where where that begins exactly. I can maybe speak a little about my own path. Yeah. Um, I, I began studying history, and then I moved to anthropology. And all along this way, I had this question or this, like, interrogation. I don't know necessarily an, an academic one, but more like a, maybe an existential one i don't know how to call it um about how does indigenous people is usually uh, conceived or understood either in, in the in the political discourse in the public discourse that, and as well in in academics and i think the, the the first time i really saw that was uh when i was studying a, a long time ago a, um a corpus of documents called Títulos Primordiales, where um, a, a, a anonymous authors coming from in the pueblos de indios in the 17th or 18th century um, wrote about their their own history, their very local history, and when you see the the story they tell in those documents, it it is nothing like the official story about indigenous people we know in colonial in, for the colonial period. There is no regret for the for Hispanic past or the pre Colombian past. There is a complete assimilation or integration of the Catholic and the uh, monarchic, uh narratives uh, and authorities, and that that was kind of uh, shocking for me. Like to realize that. Maybe the the official story we knew about uh, indigenous people being uh, oppressed and uh, always regretting of having these Catholic uh, uh, beliefs imposed to them was nothing of that in those documents. So it, those documents were usually understood as fake, as done, for for pleasing the Spanish authorities. But I, I was really not um satisfied with that kind of explanation because that really supposed that those those writers were so conscious of their real identity and of the other identity to be um to be satisfied the Spanish one. So um I tried to think about other ways other possibilities or other uh, hypotheses to explain the gap between, like the very, the, the much known history and the one I found in those documents, and it, I, I, I think my 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 idea was very simple: was that two two uh, centuries after the conquest, uh, the identity of those people had changed, so it was much more easier to understand. That they were so uh, that they constituted their history and their identity discourses with elements of of the colonial, uh, I don't know the regime, the colonial regime. So I think that that was kind of the first time I realized that maybe being indigenous didn't mean always the same uh, during the the five centuries since the conquest. You know. And I think that was the beginning of this, um, this interrogation of how those indigenous identity changes, and why have we uh, attached so uh, certain fixed meanings to that identity? You know, and so well then I did some other research more in contemporary uh, populations in for, for my PhD thesis. Um, and actually, it was, I think the, the question behind that PhD was pretty much the same as trying to understand why, um, those, the same, well, I don't know if the same, but in the same locality, people could, um, uh, defend their native identity with so, such a different argument, you know. Um at the beginning of the twentieth century those the inhabitants of Milpalta were which yeah. is a location in Mexico City known as being the heirs of the Aztecs, uh, yeah. by anthropologists and linguists and everything. Um by the end by the mid twentieth century they were recognized and later on they they defend themselves as being exactly the heirs of the Aztecs because of the of the very pure, apparently very pure Nahuatl language they spoke. And today, um, in this same locality, people are uh, moving from being identified as indigenous or, yeah. or Aztec to being identified as pueblos originarios. And that, that movement was, wasn't easy to understand for me. And one one thing, well, that that um, took me again to that idea that being native, being identified as native from somewhere, not necessarily meant the same thing in different periods or in different um, uh, localities. So I think that was the door that opened uh, the question that we try to deal with in beyond the alterity. Because one constant that appears in, in the way we usually understand the indigenous is the idea that they are radically others, right? That the, that the alterity is a constitutive, uh, element of their, their identity. So, uh, well, we, we, uh, slowly and, um, uh, through a lot of discussion with Ariadna, got to 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 ask if uh, being other was necessary to the identity of of being indigenous. So that's why we wanted to discuss in that book. Obviously, with the I don't know how to say with the hypothesis that probably not. It is possible to be to to, to claim an identity as indigenous without necessarily um, being or, or feel radically other.
0: Thank you, Paula. That's a fascinating uh, background to this, to this book. So, Ariadna, what's your story? How did you come to this project?
1: Well, um, I did my first degree in sociology um, in Madrid. I specialize in political sociology. But for my graduate studies, I was interested in social and political history, and particularly history from below. Um, I did my master's and PhD at the University of Warwick in the UK. Um, At the time, Mexican historiography had gone from studying peasant and indigenous rebellions to a kind of more nuanced view of the negotiation between uh, well, what we call in Latin America popular sectors, or we could call them subordinate groups, or they're often called uh, subaltern as well, and um, the state. Um, the, the The book edited by Jill Joseph and Daniel Nugent in 1994, Everyday Forms of a State Formation on 20th Century Mexico, is is a good summary of the state of the art uh, when I started graduate studies. And, uh, it was one of the inputs that made me, uh, want to work on schools in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, and I chose a region that was, um, known for its support of the liberal struggles of the mid 19th century. And this, you know, this had been discussed, this liberal su- support for liberalism in this region has been, had been discussed in two important books of the second half of the 1990s, which were Florencia Mallon's Peasant and Nation. And Guy Thompson's patriotism, politics, and popular liberalism, uh, which probably um, our audience knows. And I, I found this research fascinating because, um, in particular, Thompson's, uh, through a close study of the Puebla Sierra and its Nahua leader, um, the, the Puebla Sierra um, has a majority of the speakers of Nahua and Totonac languages, he uh, to challenged many assumptions about indigenous people's participation in politics. So that made me um, aware of my own wrong assumptions and and of what could be wrong with the history I was used to reading. Um, uh, The idea, for instance, that Spanish-speaking schools were out of place in indigenous Sierras or that they were too poor uh, were all ideas that collapsed when, when I went to the archives and I saw the amount of time, effort, the paperwork that people and the authorities uh, in regions like the Puebla Sierra had dedicated to 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 education. Um, so the idea that um even the idea that schools uh, were agencies of acculturation didn't work either. So, you know, whether they said they were too poor or too strong, uh, it it, it didn't quite uh, look like that to me. Uh, So I had to ask anew what roles the schools were playing. And, and, you know, I'd been working on these things before meeting Paula, and I'd also been wondering whether to edit a book that showed the state of the art in the history of indigenous peoples, because I felt at the time that, Although we've made quite a lot of progress in the 90s and later with debates on agency and hegemony, we kind of had a bit of an impasse, and nothing more exciting was happening anymore. <laughs> so uh, this is when I met Paula, and she was studying, as she's just explained, um, the uses of the category indigenous. Um, she 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 was um, working on um, this book on Milpada where she looked at anthropologists and people who identified as indigenous. And um, she was asking how and when do we call people indigenous or do people themselves decide to identify as such? And, um, well, in conversation with her, I began to ask myself, well, um, if by the Porfiriato, the late 19th century in Mexico, say by 1900 at least in the municipal archives I was used to to, to working with in um, Puebla, the word indigenous was mostly avoided. Then why are we as historians assuming we should name these people as indigenous? And, you know, when, um, how do we decide this? And I realized that uh, even though there were cases where there were clear differences, like say there was a language difference that, um, was there and was meaningful for their analysis. And you could see it in the case of, of a Spanish-speaking school sometimes uh, in in locations where indigenous, um, well, children spoke mainly indigenous languages. There were also many other cases in which it was a lot more difficult to say, oh, this man is indigenous or oh, is he mestizo or, or what's going on. So um, I started reading historians' work a lot more critically, and um, I came across some contradictions. Uh, for example, um, 19th-century historians of central Mexico, often we often work out whether a person is Indigenous or not uh, because of the lack of patronymic surnames. Uh, however, at some point in the late 19th century for some places, and in the first half of the 20th century for other places these same people started adopting patronymics, inheriting surnames. Uh, so what happens when they do this? Are we supposed to call them mestizo or non-Indian as soon as they take the patronymic? Or, or what happens, you know? Um, so basically, Paula's question uh, made me look more carefully to a lot of assumptions uh, that historians do in their everyday research and when they're writing. Um, but it was also more than that. I think it gave me what uh, I call a Joan Scott moment, as in Joan Wallach Scott's uh, work on the history of women. Uh, uh, well, you know, I, and, and she, she tells a story in, in her classic article on gender, a useful category of historical analysis. And she says, well, she, she speaks of the excitement of the beginning to write women's and feminist history, But also she points out the eventual disappointment that she reached because she felt that instead of changing the way we write history, women's history had just become a bit of a an additional field, that it was a good field and it was perhaps even flourishing, but that it wasn't really changing the way we think about history more broadly. Uh, It wasn't influencing other fields of history or not enough in her mind. And this is when she... Realize that she had to engage with post-structuralist concerns with categories, and this is when she introduces gender. And for me, I think although Mexican history from below or bottom-up history or whatever you want to call it also Western history has changed to some extent the more general accounts of history, and it's not become a total ghetto like like a Scots um, w- um, history of women. Uh, I still think that there has not been enough dialogue, dialogue between different subfields in the historiography, and that there's still too much of an automatic assumption that if Indigenous peoples fully participated in national politics, it was only exceptionally, and especially if they did so on the liberal side, there's always more suspicion. So they either did exceptionally or instrumentally, you know, they... They use liberalism, but only in order to get what they want, which is something else. It's something different, or fundamentally different to to, to the liberal objectives. So, in a way, I just still feel that, in some ways, we still, um, well, or rather, that the, these people we study are still the barbarians at the gate, and and this is when Paula's question, you know, Paula constantly asking, well, what are the contents and what are the uses. Of the category indigenous came very handy. Um, her insistence that, in spite of uh, many efforts in social science and, and history to avoid essentialisms, at some point in our argument, we're still often defining indigenous as necessarily attached to alterity. And I think that really ran true to me. So, basically, uh, you know, within these conversations with Paula, what I realize is that maybe alternative could be to Indigenous history what Scots' gender had been to women's history, if that makes sense.
0: Thank you so much, Ariadna. Um, and so this conversation between the two of you has since expanded to include a number of other collaborators. I wonder if each of you could maybe just say something briefly about how you assembled... Um, this different group of contributors and say something about the meetings that led to the publication of this book. Um, Paula, you can start. Um, okay, I, I think I think
1: here Ariadna should begin because I guess the, the 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 very first idea of gathering again after because we had already worked together in another book that was actually Ariadna's project uh, to which I got in later on um uh, and that uh the result of it was a book published by el colegio de mexico here in mexico uh, uh, which is called el ciudadanos inesperados um and so i think uh, ariana should, should speak a little bit of of that book uh which was also a very uh stimulating uh a meeting with all with the rest of the colleagues, but I think we uh we two, both of us found, found uh, a very productive and really stimulating dialogue uh, between between her her way of doing history that has, of course, uh, as she said, like a, like a, a, a background in sociology, and my own thinking of anthropology, which has a background in history, so. Uh, We we came from different places, but we had a lot of common uh, skills or common uh, readings that uh, allowed a very, very rich dialogue in that book. And actually, I would say that the idea of doing another book uh, together came first from Ariadna. And, I mean, of course, I was... um, very interesting, interested too, and we began to think it together. But uh, the the first idea was, I would say, more maybe historiographic. I don't know what Ariana would think, but it was about thinking precisely about change and history uh, in indigenous population. How to how to rethink about that? How to introduce? How to how to Precisely moving from all this historiography she was describing um uh that finally uh, um, uh puts indigenous people or indigenous history in in some other uh, 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 uh like at some other box different from our history even if of course more and more change has been integrated. More and more they are uh, given agency, etc., etc. So, um, I think that uh, the first, the first project we made was more in that, in that, uh, in that path, and then later on, discussing, we got to this uh, alterity, uh, to this questioning alterity, and so. Maybe, maybe our our uh, 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 colleagues invited to the first project was where, where uh, we thought of them um, in relation to that first project. But it's true that it was also um, people we, we wanted to discuss with beyond the. the the, the specific project, no?
0: but I, I think Ariadna could say more about that. Yes, please, Ariadna, could you um, continue the story for us? Sure. Um, yeah, well, Carla is
1: right to point out that um, you know, one obvious um, practical, but also more, um, I don't know, emotionally, if you like um, uh, precedent is that we'd already done a book together, from respective citizens and that that came out of a project I had um which came out of my having moved to Mexico after studying in the UK and uh, um, I was in a de- I was and I'm still in a department of educational research which has been a very good place for interdisciplinary research so like we are always in contact with um different social scientists anthropologists um sociologists political scientists um uh, educationalists and and that really uh, it's a field that pushes you to 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 actually look at other disciplines so i had that um that interest but also i had um i had accumulated a number of years as a um professor in this department in Mexico City and I had had also the chance to to look at what was going on in uh, Mexican historiography because I basically studied although I grew up in Mexico I done my undergraduate and graduate studies abroad but I you know by the time I accumulated some time looking at what Mexican historians were doing um I was still interested in, in 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 political agency but I was I was very worried that there wasn't a lot of um well there wasn't as much dialogue as I wanted to see between different fields in history. So that was that that's always been like a, a constant concern. And um I think what I found in Paula was that even though she came from a very different um um training, she she also had that sort of concern and she wasn't afraid of jumping from one field to another. She was used to talking to anthropologists and historians at the same time. And, uh, I found that, um, well, just really valuable. And that's what made me want to, um, uh, write more stuff with her, other than her wonderful question on alterity, which really just really made me rethink, um, basically everything I had <laughs> thought about before. So, um, yeah, so that that's the precedent. And I, I was just basically, I mean, what, what, what the idea to do this second book, Beyond Alterity, was, well, I mean, I continue with my concerns about political agency, but, you know, I, I started asking, well, what does the idea that Indigenous peoples must be other, Is still doing within the historiography? And, you know, what people do I know who have, escaped most from this cage of alterity and have questioned um, constantly uh, the assumptions about indigenous peoples being uh, always uh, uh, um, attached to communal land holding or always uh, defending a certain type of corporate pollution or... Being more attached to oral culture than written culture, etc. etc. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just basically thought, well, who are the people whose books I enjoyed most <laughs> in this, you know, and have done these kind of things with their work? And this is how we came up with at least, I mean, there were many other people that we also considered, but, but, uh, you know, people can be very busy, or maybe not totally connect with the main aims of your product, or just the timing might be wrong for them. As so, I, you know, there were a lot of people we talked to that couldn't make it to the book, but but basically, the the, the people we we were thinking of were people who had challenged um, the idea that you can have a fixed. Um, Definition for who is Indigenous and they did it in very different ways. And, uh, I don't, I don't know if Paula wants to say something about, um, how she, um, thought of inviting people who had actually done work on the history of the category Indigenous and how this overlaps with the history of science, the history of the category of race. Uh, and obviously the history of anthropology yes, um, yeah, actually, I was thinking that uh in the first project we wrote, which was actually uh, submitted to um to a melon Lhasa um uh, uh founding which which we got, and that I opened the possibility of of three or four meetings I don't remember during during two years, because uh, one thing I think it, it's important to say is that this this new book, Beyond 30 took um, five years to be done. So <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's usual or not. Here in Mexico, not that much. But um, it, for me, it's important to say it because it, it, it can give some sense of the effort that was put in that book. Uh we we we've been working on it from two thousand and thirteen till finally two thousand and eighteen when it was uh published. But then in two thousand and thirteen we applied for this funding uh with this project and I think I was trying to remember where, where we were at, at at that point. And I think that um two uh, we we had like two needs. If we can say say it that way, one was a, a feeling of of a of a of an empty space uh, for discussing the, the indigenous identity from new perspectives. Like uh, we we had the feeling that we usually find kind of the same, more or less the same argument, even if um empirical uh, data changed or the or the period uh, discussed changed the 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 coordinates that organize the the narrative about indigenous history or indigenous present don't change that much they are resisting or they are uh, oppressed or they are uh, trying to to uh uh, construct give a, a cultural sense in their own margin you know there is some kind of coordinates that they, that are always there so what I think one 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 need we had at that point was trying to to see if there was a possibility of saying something else and the other was what Ariadna had just said about trying to do that um Outside or 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 not only with people working about indigenous identity, but people working about uh, land, about schools, as her and Elsie Rockwell, about science, about uh, uh, archaeology. I don't know. Try, try to 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 to, uh, to to invite people to integrate. Those questions to their own fields instead of doing a book of specialists dealing with indigenous identity and trying to um, to to deepen into that those questions i don 't know if the difference is, is clear and I think that that was well for her um, of course uh, all these authors from the nineteenth century she she invited because actually i i read them um, because of her actually <laughs> that wasn't my my own field of 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 expertise of or working um where uh colleagues working in a very fine and uh detailed uh, way with in other in other uh subjects just as as we just said land politics um the war is my confusing. uh and for my part i was um i was trying to think and this is this can sound weird, but i was trying to think in anthropolog uh colleagues anthropologists that work with indigenous people or or people uh, self represented as indigenous without assuming all the all the premises that comes with those identities you know and it's not that easy to find <laughs> um i mean anthropologists in mexico historically have uh become kind of um the voice of the of the oppressed or the voice of of uh indigenous people or that's the way many of them think of themselves. So it's not that easy to find anthropological research that still deals with indigenous people, but without assuming as a principle all those premises that were problematic for us, as, for example, the idea of alterity. So that's something we say very quickly in the introduction of the book. We are not saying that studying uh world views or rituals or um or um the the cultural specificities of uh, a certain population is not valued we just wanted to try if there's other things to study right not, not not that we shouldn't study that but that maybe that's not all to study as for indigenous people right so um i came with uh colleagues i appreciate and, and i admire very very much um anthropologists but not only so um i don't know if we should talk right now about, about them but um for example um gabriela torres masuera uh, she's anthropologist and sociologist and she works in a very um uh how could I say a, 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 a very uh, a region that is acknowledged for being very indigenous, very very Maya in in Yucatan, right? And actually, what she shows and what I really love of, of her chapter is that um, in all this region, you have so much different reactions to the same institutional process, showing that somehow. Uh, the, the institutional process is the legalization of of, of land the, It's it's called titularization. I don't know if that, that makes sense in English but to give documents about the land, right? To to, to 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 peasant people. And how different communities, all of them identified as indigenous, do very, very different things of that process, showing then that there is not like a, an indigenous reaction to it, right? There are several reactions to it. And only to to fragment that, to fragment that ensemble, uh, which seems like a very basic gesture, an intellectual gesture or analytical gesture, is really not easy to find uh, in literature. I, I am maybe generalizing too much, but I would say it's, it's not the main tendency right so that was the kind of things we were looking for we we can we can um speak uh more more detail about about the chapters later but um I would say that was right, that was uh, an important criteria that to find people that were disposed and um um that were interested in uh discussing processes attached to indigenous people, either in the present or in the past, without assuming um, a bunch of premises that, that are problematic for us, especially the idea that they, that they act differently because they are different.
0: Thank you. So let's indeed think a little bit more about what it means to go beyond alterity with some more specific examples, um, as you've just brought up. So, this book actually has 11 chapters, um, so it will be difficult to go into all of them, but they are divided into two parts, and each of you has a a chapter, a contribution in each part. So, maybe Ariadna, would you tell us a bit about your chapter and then how it fits into that broader section, which is called Land and Government?
1: Sure. Um, Well, um, my chapter looks at um, schools in the Oaxaca and Puebla Sierras, the Sierras Nortes, they are called Northern Sierras in those places. And they're both places known for their support of liberalism during the what's called the Reforma, which is the introduction of several important uh, liberal policies, including the disentailment of land, known as the Samortización in Spanish. And, um, and it, it, this includes, of course, as well, secular schooling in the Spanish language, um, and um, I looked at the schools in particular in these regions and I find they're more abundant than we thought they were, but also that there is a certain hierarchy to them and uh, that the political administrative hierarchies that are well known to um, colonial historians and uh, to 19th century historians as well, uh, well, and that really are a future of the 20th century, too, uh, uh, were also crucial in determining what kind of uh, schools uh, localities had. And uh, and the uh, schools themselves were a part of the struggles to obtain uh, a, a better political status, um, whether formally or informally, vis-a-vis the higher levels of government. Um, and, uh, well, I, I, I just basically tried to show that, uh, uh, these the Spanish-speaking schools were not out of place in these, uh, uh, sierras, which are considered to be very indigenous and where indeed, uh, several indigenous languages are spoken, uh, mainly Zapotec in Oaxaca, but also in and, 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 mainly, Nahuatl and Totonac in Puebla. Um, how did this fit in the whole land and government? Well, it was. I mean, as we've said, it was it was it was all about finding different instances in which uh, indigenous peoples don't do what they're supposed to do according to some of our assumptions, and. Uh, well, I mean, one of the things I find is that there is a huge effort by, by authorities to keep these schools, but also by people themselves. Um, there are different ways to raise money for these schools, but this also show, uh, you know, great support for them, even if only a minority of children attended them. The so literacy rates were still low. Um, but they were still very important in social and political terms and in order to reproduce a local elite who could write and therefore be in connection with, uh, uh, with, uh, other levels of government. And this actually connects well with Elsie Rockwell's chapter because she looks at, um, how, uh, now we're speaking pueblos in Tlaxcala engaged Spanish literacy, and she's got she's got very different type of sources because she's got this wonderful oral history which I, I don't have for my period, which is a previous period. I I, I look at post she looks at um, early and mid twentieth century, and she's got this 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 wonderful oral history that she started doing in the nineteen seventies and eighties, and uh, she shows how people engage with written documents, uh, even though they have little or, uh, I mean, in some cases even no schooling. So it, it shows very well how the schools I look at, although they are not very strong from the point of view of what they elite expected, because, you know, legislation spoke of universal education, compulsory education for all the children between the ages 6 and 12. And, this, uh, and, you know, we actually have, uh, I mean, the fact is that it's about 20% of children attended the schools only, and in some places even less than 20%. There were many other ways in which people with very little schooling uh, engage with with. Um, with the Spanish literacy and with written documents. And of course there's a huge um agrarian history that that, that is, uh, is is um that shows engagement with uh written documents uh and but but it's it's still you know it's I think it's quite telling that we still have to emphasize the fact that the people in these pueblos um uh sort of written in Spanish as something extremely important. Um, And it's because there is that underlying idea that you associate the indigenous with the oral. And that's also uh, uh, in the literature, and uh, Elsie Rockwell explains this very well, uh, the dichotomy between oral and written. And, uh, you know, what she's doing is she's in dialogue with... um, all the literature that has questioned this dichotomy, and she brings it into our work. Um, the the chapter by Peter Wardino called "Connected Communities" is is also uh, quite connected to these issues, um, because obviously, I mean, you needed this type of engagement with the Spanish literacy and some help from. Schools and in in their role to 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 produce uh, uh, knowledge and skills to produce written documents and to deal with uh, administration, but but also as, as political symbols of 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 uh, joining a certain type of um, liberal estate. and these all were tools that helped connect the communities, as 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 Guardino argues in his chapter. And also tools that uh, made it possible to, um, rebel in the case when they rebelled. And, uh, well, I mean, Martino is known for his work on what has been called popular federalism, um, up to the Ayubta revolution in the 1850s. Uh, and also his work on Oaxaca during the late colonial and early national period, including, including the independence, of course. And he uh, shows how uh, uh, former Indian pueblos uh, uh, during independence wars and afterwards, uh, even if they just wanted to reproduce uh, the life they had in the municipalities, they still had to connect with many uh, other um communities and they had to connect with the different levels of government, uh, uh, to act and to obtain what they wanted. So he questions any ideas of, um, you know, isolated communities. Uh, Michael Ducey does very much the same, uh, in a more specific, uh, more concrete chapter for the Gulf Coast region. Uh, uh, looking at the War of Independence. And again, I think I find it very telling that in spite of the fact that since the 1990s, as I mentioned at the beginning, we've been having all this work on the political agency of peasants and indigenous people. And we've had all this work insisting that they're not only capable of political agency, but they're also capable of change. We still find that People who've been working on this for the last 20 years still feel the need to emphasize that uh, we're not looking at isolated communities, that the participation of these people um, was not um, irrelevant to the broader national picture, uh, uh, and that they were not at all um, uh, irrelevant. And, uh, I mean, both of them, uh, engage directly with Eric Van Jung's The Other Rebellion because it's the book that is, um, come up with the kind of clearest example of the idea that Indigenous peoples were doing something totally different to what the elite was doing and what regional and national leaders were doing while fighting, um, and what would come to be known as the Warriors of Independence. Um, well, and then of course for Agrarian History we have the two chapters of Emilio Curie and Gabriela Torres who speaks about the present um, and uh, well I won't say anything more about Gabriela Torres because uh, Paula already uh, summarised quite well uh, the, the value of, of her chapter uh I just mentioned about Emilio Cordes that uh, he also fits in very nicely in this book I think and um because uh he for a long time he has been uh wanting to question um some assumptions about corporate landholding uh in in um, what were called uh, Indian republics in the colonial period, and you know what well, the uh, and the municipalities after um, after independence uh, that were former uh, Indian pueblos, and he he wants to as he explains at the beginning of his chapter he wants to um, question three uh, uh, ideas that uh, historians have. Um, um sustained about uh, corporate land in Indian pueblos which are communalism, uh um cohesion, cohesion uh, that they are co- cohes- cohesive and um and a spirit of egalitarian, egalitarian solidarity, he says. And uh, he goes through um a lot of um colonial and um Nine um, colonial historiography showing how uh, these assumptions, even uh, in the books, um, uh, that it, it, I mean, even in books where other practices are shown, even in books that recognize uh, alternative practices such as the fact of private property, or even in books. Which recognise that uh, the that was um very hierarchical and a very unequal uh structure of land use, there is still an assumption that corporate land holding is about communal tenure it's about uh, being um yeah being cohesive. And 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 he's got some sort of egalitarian uh, component, and I think the way he goes through this we, in, in a lot of detail I find very useful, because a classic observation that uh, we've been getting uh, 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 when we've been presenting this book and when it was only a project and we were presenting its premises is that, oh well, but. All those those things you're questioning have been questioned for a long time. And I think it's true, they have been questioned for a long time. But I always feel that they are not questioned deeply enough, that we don't go to the bottom of it. And that there's always a way in which, as Emilio Curie shows all these practices that do not fit in the idea of communalism or in the idea of solidarity or in the idea of egalitarianism are somehow relegated to the sidelines. They're recognized because they're everywhere in the evidence, in the archives. Uh, Well, or everywhere in life, as Gabriela Torres shows in her uh, ethnographic work. But uh, somehow they, they, they... Tend to be relegated to something secondary, or even if they get quite a lot of attention, uh, in the end, in the conclusions, what we tend to emphasise, uh, well, what, what a lot of historians tend to emphasise is that, that those assumptions, communalism, etc. So, so I think um, that's um, it's it's a difficult um, kind of work, but that's that's what we're trying to do with these chapters.
0: Thank you so much, Ariadna. So, Paula, your chapter is part of the section uh, Science. Can you share a little bit about your argument and findings in that chapter and then maybe make some connections to other themes that come up in that part of the book?
1: Of course, yes. Uh, I, I think I'll, I'll go the other way. I'll try to explain before how, do we, how did we devise the chapters and why there is like two sections, and maybe then explain what was the specificity of the second one and then my chapter in it, right? Um, because one thing I think should be said about this book is an- another challenge, if you want, uh, of, of putting together this book, and that was a real hard work with the editors. Uh, and this is maybe the moment to to thank them because um, uh, the editor of uh, Arizona University Press was really supportive of our project since the very very beginning and without knowing nothing and with a book that is not easy because it's not easy in the sense that it it don't um um uh, uh, it don't it doesn't gather gather uh, uh, texts from the same discipline nor the same period of time, nor the same region, nor the same perspective. <laughs> so there was a, a high risk of of um, not finding the coherence of it, you know. It, uh, as Ariadna just said, Emilio Curi uh, gave us a marvelous chapter of the colonial period. And... Um, our colleague Vivette Garcia analyzes the genomic lab, uh, labs today. So, how could we find a common ground for all this arch of subjects, periods, regions, perspectives? And, and more because the questioning about uh, the indigenous subject was ours. We, we, I mean, we proposed that question, but they, it, that that, weren't of, that that question didn't came from them. It came from us, and we didn't want to impose it either. Right. So we had to find like a like a hard uh, middle ground to include their own perspectives and give a kind of coherence by this big question about how the indigenous identity is. Uh, fixed and produced, and what happens to it when you go to evidence as, as the chapters Ina just described uh, uh, do so after a lot of discussing and and uh, and, and tries um, I think that the two um, the two parts of the book were given by an analytical distinction that finally was very useful for us. I, I guess, I uh, can, can, can add. some what, what's her view on it? Um, which was a, it, it comes from, from theory of identity, uh, uh, processes of identification. Authors like, uh, Frederick Barth or, um, Roger Brubachers or, uh, Richard Jenkins, and, and and Pierre Bourdieu, and all of them somehow in different ways, try to um, uh, uh, open the identity process by separating it in two aspects. One would be the category, to think about uh, identity categories, and the other, which is not the same, and that's a very, very important one, the experience of people are being categorized that way, right? So just the fact of acknowledging that being categorized with some name is not equivalent or exactly the same as experiencing that identity opens a lot of new and fresh questions from my point of view. So somehow I would say that the the way we organize that, that was a clue for organizing our book because all the chapters that Ariadna just uh, uh summarized speak effectively of how the experience of those people doesn't um matches necessarily what the category indigenous induces, right? So the cat for example with uh Kuri's book uh Kuri's chapter the category "pueblo de indios" has, uh, in historiography, has induced to think exactly about this communal, harmonic, uh, um, uh, united uh, collectivity. And actually, when you see the experience of the people through the documents, you see that that category is completely exceeded by that experience. Right? That the experience is much more complicated, much more elaborated with. Um, uh, uh, differences with uh, inequalities with uh, different reactions, as just as I just said with the, for the chapter of Gabriela. So we, we found very useful to think about how the experience we found in uh, evidence exceeded the category indigenous and the contents usually associated with. So that was like the first part. And and actually thinking from that point of view, all the chapters that got into this first section, land and government, really were expressing that idea, really were showing how um, uh, we can have an idea of what those indigenous mean in certain periods and then see how um, the experience of the people uh, that are inscribed in it, are really much more varied. And I think that this this idea, this argument about the, the, the experience exceeding the category, um, dialogues in an important way with also a political statement that it we have assumed that the the best way somehow uh, of of doing justice to indigenous people is exactly by doing the contrary, by recognizing their their singularity, their specificity, their cultural difference, right? Because apparently that has been denied um, uh, through history. And so another questioning that we usually have about the book is, how do we deal with the fact that those kind of arguments may uh, damage uh, indigenous uh, claims, political claims today, for example, right? Um and i would i would say that for me it's also very oppressive to um to impose some expectation of alterity to those people right to deny the possibility of of claiming that identity and not doing what that category is expecting to do to deny that possibility so um I don't know. I, I mean I am not the one uh I have I have to, to um I am interested in, when, in what the readers will have to say about it. But I think that at least in our project and for me what that ensemble of texts give is the possibility of um of um uh open the category to other experience right instead of um uh, uh, evaluating them no so that's for the first part but the second part in the book um which is called science um tries to deal with the other aspect uh of this analytic distinction so the first one deals with experience as related to categories. Right? And the second, as we understand them as different, because we don't want to make an equivalence between experience and categories, deals with the story, with the history of the category indigenous, right? Without assuming that this is the history of the people identified as such. So it, it's, it's more a conceptual history, except that. Uh we, we really prefer to talk about categories rather than concepts because it, it, the, the idea of concept can can um can bring bring us to some kind of uh uh permanent or universal definition, right? We 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 want exactly the opposite. We want to show how in the uses uh the meanings are attached to that term. Um And so the second part tries to explain, tries to to, um, reconstruct some uh, 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 episodes of the history of the Indigenous, the category of Indigenous. We are not pretending of doing like the global history of the category Indigenous. We don't think that's possible and we don't think that's very useful. Because precisely what we are trying to state here is that, um, the indigenous category is very, very co- conjunctural, how do you say? Like very, uh, produced, contingent, exactly. Thank you. Produced in specific situations, in specific interaction, obviously with, with a, a background, an important historical and political background, but always reframed and, and, um, by those interactions, and one one uh, social field where that uh, uh, process of produ- producing the meanings of the categories is really, really uh, rich is indeed the the, the social sites. So we were uh, we we put together texts when we where we can see how um uh the um production of scientific knowledge was key to stabilizing that category in different periods of time uh, and in different contexts. And I mean I think I think the the altogether they all, all these uh, chapters together help very much to understand how uh, for once um, the indigenous category don't have a fixed and absolute sense or content second that is uh, impossible to separate from other political processes specifically the nation and state, and state formation and inside of it uh, the social sciences formation i mean it, 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 the three of them are are weaved together somehow um, and that uh, and then and that this field of science was key to to the stabilization of it so that's the that's the that's the aim of this second section, to show how those... This, this is a history we can make, make as well. It's not only a history of indigenous populations, but a history of the meanings, the historical variation of the meanings of the term indigenous, right? Which we are moving to some somewhere else. And inside of it, my chapter... Um, well maybe I should talk about the others first, but um well, it begins with a chapter uh, written by Laura Chazaro, which is a colleague from Ariadna from uh, of Ariadna from the year as well and she she makes a a, a very very beautiful uh, argument through through the through the bones uh, and skulls uh, uh con the uh kept in the National Museum. How how through, through those objects and the and the instruments the the science, scientists from the beginning of the twentieth century used to measure them and to uh understand them, we can say, uh a notion of a specific Mexican race uh, was to took shape actually. And what is very very beautiful in that chapter is that she she goes really really from the materiality of of doing research, right? The objects, the instruments, the the the, the spaces where where they were um, exposed, and how in those in in the, those everyday objects mm-hmm. a, a new idea of a Mexican race uh, came. Right? And then. The the second chapter of the section is actually my my own chapter, and it deals with uh, a debate that took place in a in a very important journal, academic journal of the of the of the forties of the nineteen forties in Mexico, and what what interested me in that chapter is that we can see forcefully and explicitly how the idea of who was an indigenous people, or what made them indigenous, was not clear. Though. I mean, that was really an an unstable category of identification, Um and it, it is a very rich discussion because we you you can see through the it, it comes it goes from nineteen forty one to nineteen forty nine, and you can see, I. But that those debates allows us to see two things. One is that um, anthropological theories were made on the debate in itself. I mean, you, you, you don't have anthropologists with their own background already made that come into the discussion only to encounter other anthropologists with their own ideas already made. But they are really made, elaborated in the discussion. So that's for anthropology anthropology but for for the category of indigenous, you see clearly how the contents associated with them changed during the, the, the that decade those almost ten years so that was very um, i don't know so that was that was for me for my my own uh, interpretations of how indigenous identities constructed was very illustrating because uh, you can see very concretely how this category is moving. It's it's not static, it's not uh referring to the same things always. There is always this there has always been a debate. Um and it is true that debate the category filled, uh, get filled of of content. Mm-hmm. No? Um in in a very close dialogue with it there is the next chapter with my with my own chapter, the chapter of uh, Diana Schwartz Francisco, and um, deals with like the practical aspect of that category by reconstructing how the anthropologists that work uh, in the first project of the INI. Of the Instituto Nacional Indigenista, created in 1949 to deal precisely with the development of the indigenous people in Mexico, um, uh, got kind of uh, how do you say like a, a gap between the idea they had of indigenous people and the people they met uh, in the field, right? And she she shows very uh, very clearly how. The categories those anthropologists had weren't that useful for uh, the practical work they had to do inside the government of Spain. Right? And then um, uh, the article of José Luis Escalona uh, shows more a uh, 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 pretty much the same kind of argument of showing. Uh, the, uh, through the work of a very famous anthropo- anthropologist that worked in the Maya region during more or less 30 years, Ebon Vogt, how um, a specific notion of the Maya culture came in through the work, the anthropological and archaeological work. And this is also very interesting, how um, through internal documents, field diaries, correspondences, reports, uh, he, 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 he really shows how an idea, a fixed idea of what the Maya is, uh, took place through the work, through the research, right? And finally, the, the work of Livet Garcia, which, uh, I mean, I think she, it, it complements, it closes very, very well the project because what, uh, she, as I said, she worked, uh, following or studying, uh, Genomic uh, researchers in the labs where they produce uh, DNA analysis for medical, biomedical studies or uh, other. And what I find very inspiring of this chapter is that you can see how this um, hyper high technologies uh, science, which is genomics. Very modern, it's so much uh, financing and, and such a high te- uh, level of technology. Um, uh, doesn't uh, they, they, they take the, the researchers to reproduce some um, uh, classical ideas about what the indigenous is. Okay. So, in, in the 21st century, with one of the more uh, developed and and, and richest sciences of what the human is, we go back to ideas of what indigenous is uh, very close to what Laura Chazaro deals with in the the beginning of the 20th century as uh, a mythical um, inheritance coming from the very uh, far past uh, in the pre-Columbian era or as a pathological uh, inheritance that um, produces diabetics and other diseases, diseases that are now current in Mexico. So, um, how how this new science contributes directly to fix again some ideas that are uh, historically assumed to be uh, proper to indigenous people. So, I think that in 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 the in the altogether they they can give us pretty much a sense of how. Uh, that category has its own history, by
0: itself as well Thank you, Paula and Ariadna for taking us on this very exciting tour of the book um, before we conclude the conversation, and so we don't take more of your time, um, I would just like to ask if you could each tell us very briefly what you're working on these days. um Ariadna, would you share first sure um well um as Paula said, the the,
1: book, the book's two parts were about experience, the first part, and category, the second part. And what I'm doing um, in my new research is trying to take into account the work I've already done on the experience of peoples, but put it in dialogue more with a history of categories. So the new stuff I'm looking at is looking at how People in, well, mainly intellectuals and politicians in Mexico City and in Oaxaca City conceived of indigenous peoples in terms of whether they were ready or not for citizenship and in terms of what education they should receive. So that's that gets me closer to um, studying the contents of the category indigenous. Uh, after a long time looking at uh, just the experience of people who've been called indigenous and um i'm also i've also got uh, uh, another project uh which takes me to a more um, transnational history uh and it takes me uh and it's not about mexico um it's about spain but it's also got an alterity component because I'm looking at political science and sociology in 1960s, 1970s Spain, and the process of democratization in Spain after Franco's death. And what I look at in this new project is how um there is a certain... Group of political scientists and sociologists using um, tools mainly from American universities, actually, uh, to um, create an argument whereby it is possible for Spain and for countries with uh, Hispanic connection uh, by extent to become democratic and. They, to, in order to do this, they need to question the idea, the culturalist idea that, um, that Hispanic peoples are not ready for democracy. So, that there is, uh, it, it fits in nicely with something that, um, historians of the 19th century are doing, which is questioning the idea that Liberalism was out of place in Spain or in Latin America, and that, that it was just a land of strongmen like Caciques and Caudillos. And but I'm I'm taking this to the to the last part of the 20th century, looking at at, at the um, social science around democratization. And um, that's all.
0: Thank you. And what about you, Paula?
1: Um. So. I was my my current project deals with uh, the history of the Instituto Nacional Indigenista, as I just said, created in the late '40s. But as well, that took me necessarily to to the history of anthropology. And what I'm trying to do now is to understand both of them, like like history of science and history of public policies addressed to indigenous people, but uh, through the, through the, uh, vantage point of the everyday practices in the film. And that, that's, uh, kind of, uh, a, uh, a, 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 a lucky thing I, I found because there are a lot of, uh, field note diaries of anthropologists and indigenistas from the 40s to the 60s. So, uh, I am, of course, conscious that they are always a mediation, but it's through, through those documents it's possible to to um, to study somehow the, the public policy and the study of anthropology in the making somehow. Not, not in the theories, not in the doctrines, not that much in the big uh, intellectuals, but more in the field people that were working uh, in Chiapas or Oaxaca Little communities, how do they got in, how do they um, deal with the local tensions, with the fact of being an outsider, uh, what what kind of questions do they do, how, how do they, they get familiarized, everything. So um, And when seeing from that specific point of view, the like kind of the margin of the public policy or the margin of the discipline, and not, not the, the big result that you present at the end of your research. Um, it's, again, very productive to understand how does uh, the indigenous identities being produced or understood or fixed through uh, political or state practices or scientific practices, because um, in those field notes, it's very common to see how uh, this is an, a, a very moving identity, as well for the people living in the communities, in the localities, as for the anthropologists. That uh, it's very common to to read in those field notes that oh, but they are are they really indigenous? Where are the indigenous? Who are the indigenous? Because they talk, but they don't speak in language, or they speak sometimes and they don't, and they go out and they get in. I mean, but you, you can see pretty much than in the, in the final results they published, how this is a very moving category. So I am interested in, in, in document that evidence of, of, of the instability and the variability and the elusive, the, the elusive quality of, of the category indigenous in the 40s and 50s.
0: Thank you. These are fascinating projects and I'm very much looking forward to keeping up with them. So we've been speaking today with Paula Lopez Caballero and Ariadna acevedo Rodrigo about their edited collection, Beyond Alterity, Destabilizing the Indigenous Other in Mexico. Ariadna and Paula, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much, Rachel. It was a pleasure to discuss with you. Yes, thank you very much for this opportunity to talk to your audience, it was great.